us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lundlu Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. And in a few minutes, we are going to talk about this week's markets. We're going to talk about SIVB and some of the hidden dangers in this current market. But before we do, I want to talk about something that happened to me this week. Look, I know I'm a very lucky guy. Seven days a week, I am able to sit down for dinner with my wife and my two kids. I know a lot of families don't have that um, option every week, but I do, and I'm very grateful for it. However, this Wednesday, before we sat down, my daughter said, I need to make an announcement. And when she was done with her announcement, the first thing that popped into my head was a piece that I wrote on my blog almost 12 years ago. I should be ashamed to write this post, to be the guy that complains about having to pay taxes after he wins the lottery. But lately, I can't get over the feeling that I'm losing my little girl. The little girl that I never wanted. The little girl that I was afraid of having. My little girl, who gave the ambling vapid, pointless, too cool for the room life I lived, a purpose and a point the moment she came into this world. I am terrified that she is dying and not in purely figurative terms. Last week, I awoke suddenly in the dark morning hours with a terrible realization that the little six-year-old girl sleeping peacefully in the next room would someday cease to exist. She would be gone lost to the movement of time, with only digital remnants and memories of her left behind. Yes, God willing, she will still continue to grow and thrive, remaining as full of life as she is now. I will still have that 11-year-old or 16 or 20 or 30-year-old to hug and hold. But though I will love each one of them with every ounce of my being, I fear they will never fully soothe the loss of my little girl. The little girl singing to her favorite song while doodling at the kitchen table. The little girl who yells, Daddy's home, as she runs towards me to deliver a hug that negates the hardest day. The little girl who still thinks I'm the greatest person in the world and can protect her from anything bad. I love that little girl so much. I don't want her to leave. I don't want her to go. But I know she will. Too many things are out there conspiring to kill her. First communion, nail polish and pierced ears, mean girls, school dances, first loves, first broken heart. They will all take a part of my little girl away from me. As a child, I hated the first day of school more than anything else. It meant the end of carefree summer days, family vacations, and staying out until the streetlights came on. But after high school, the first day of school became irrelevant to me as the realities and responsibilities of adulthood took center stage. I have once again learned to loathe the first day of school. 
It now signifies another year lost in my daughter's childhood. Another step closer to hearing things like, I'm taking the car out. He only has two piercings. Or, yay, I got accepted when reading a letter from that out-of-state college. People tell me that this is just part of the cycle of life and that growing up is a marvelous adventure. And though factually right, it still does not relieve me of the urge to punch them right in the nose when they say those things. The worst thing about this all is I haven't been able to slow time down anymore. It's just been moving too fast. When she was still a babe in arms, those days seemed to go on forever. They seemed as if they would never end. I felt so present, so lucid, so in the moment during those times. Today we went to the park to fly her kite. And I tried to slow down each moment in a desperate attempt to grasp onto something I have no right to possess. Yet I couldn't. All I could do was feel time slipping through my hands as I watched my little girl die. There's a moment in life that I call golden time. What that time is has varied for me over the years, depending on what stage I was in at my life. At one point, it was the time between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. on a Friday night when the work week was over and I could play my drums for three hours straight while pounding a six-pack of beer before going out to the bar with my friends. At another point, it was before I had children of my own, when my goddaughter and her siblings were young. My wife and I would go to my mother-in-law's, where the kids would already be, and as we waited for my mother-in-law to cook dinner, we would watch them play in the cul-de-sac as the summer sun set over the top of the neighboring houses, giving off a light that seemed to envelop the scene with a magical warmth. All right, present day Brian is back. Thinking about that piece, I just realized that time is an odd concept. Sometimes it shifts imperceptibly, taking you from one phase in your life to another without you even knowing it. For example, nobody rang a bell and told me, hey, Brian, this is your last Friday night playing the drums from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., while you pound a six-pack before you go out to the bar with your friends. Nobody gave me a heads up. Hey, this is the last night you'll be able to watch your goddaughter and her brothers and sisters play out in the summer sun. But sometimes time smacks you in the face, and it leaves no doubt that you have just left one phase of your life never to return to it. Like when you realize that you are no longer the only man in your daughter's life, which is what I realized Wednesday night after my daughter announced that she has her first boyfriend. Uh, Is this the lunch loop? Boy, what an amazing week we had in the market this week. And by amazing, I mean shitty. (laughs) Uh, The market, by life by definition, always has unknowns. We don't know what is going to happen from from one moment to the next. However, some things are a little more unexpected than we thought. Going into this week, everybody was paying attention to Jerome Powell. He was going to talk on Tuesday and Wednesday. That was the focus. I don't think anybody had Silicon Valley Bank blowing up on their bingo card. For those that have been living with a dingo in Western Australia for the last week or two, Silicon Valley Bank came into this week right about 3.09. By the time it closed on Thursday, it was at 1.06. 
pre-market on Friday, it was about 39, but they never opened it up, or I think they opened it up and halted it. I'm not exactly sure. Point is, it lost about 90% this week. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because Silicon Valley Bank, as you might guess by the name, is home to hundreds of millions, if not probably billions of dollars worth of deposits from Silicon Valley startups. I, I read somewhere that somewhere north of 50% of all American-based startups bank with SVB. Another thing, another thing I read said 65%. All right, so unknown risk. Weren't expecting this risk coming into the week. Now, if we talk about this specific situation, there's a debate about how this is going to wash out. If you go to the Lundloop Discord, we've got some really smart people in there. Most notably, this next part I'm going to talk about is from D-Man. So D-Man, I'm giving you a shout out. D-Man seems to have a deep background in banking. And from what he was saying in Discord, here's basically how it's going to work out. Silicon Valley Bank is not like a Lehman situation or a Bear Stearns situation in that this is not a problem about leverage. This is a problem of betting on short-term rates against long-term rates and having the yield curve invert, which causes a problem. So the long and the short of it is someone like a JP Morgan could come in, buy the bank, take those problematic assets put them into their long-term asset accounts. Uh, They would have to realize a loss. I I think I get this right. They have to realize a loss now, which would be about 20 billion. But they've got the balance sheet and the infrastructure to just hold those assets and wait. And it's only a matter of time before the yield curve flips and it's a profitable trade. It sounds like a perfect Jamie Dimon swoop in, buy it for pennies and have a guaranteed profit. Okay, so that's one thought process of what could happen. The other thought process is, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, there's more issues that we don't even know about yet, and nobody's going to touch this bank. This bank is going to go insolvent, or it's going to need a government bailout. We just don't know. Probably by Monday morning, we will know one way or the other. But what we do know is this. We know that in the short term, there's going to be a massive liquidity crunch for these companies that bank with SVB and have their assets basically locked or tied up until we get some sort of resolution. So that's going to cause problems with payrolls, right? Meeting debt obligations in the short term. Now, VCs are pretty wily people. I'm sure they'll be able to figure out a way to get through this. But the unknown risk here is when you have situations like this, they generally create a shock wave of which we don't fully understand how it's going to play out. This may cause the already jittery world of M&A and uh, venture capital to reassess the way they do business. It may have them be less aggressive in funding companies. It may cause them to pull the plug on companies. And we know what happens there. You get this, this, this domino effect, this contagion effect. So we're, we're really not sure how this thing is going to uh, play out. So that's a That's a risk that we didn't realize coming into this week and that we still don't understand the depths of as we sit here. By the way, I'm not shedding any tears for venture capitalists, for M&A firms, for private money. These guys have been 
screwing with us for decades now. Look, I'm all into free markets and everything, but let's just be brutally honest here. Venture capitalists are portrayed as these great folks who are funding startup companies that are bringing fantastic technology and changing the world. And yes, maybe that is true. But venture capitalists are really uh, lamprey-ish characters. Back in the olden days, which would be the 80s, when a stock came public, there was a really good shot that that company was going to have its hockey stick moment post-IPO. That's what you hope for. People would clamor to get shares in an IPO. People would try to bribe and wine and dine their broker. Brokers gave their best clients IPO shares because it was almost a guaranteed win. Take, for example, Microsoft. Microsoft went public in 1986. On a split-adjusted basis, their shares were $0.06. Cents. And on that same split-adjusted basis by 2000, they were $37.50 a share. That was a massive hockey stick moment that the public, the public markets, got to participate in. That means you and I, individual investors, pension funds, uh, 401ks, retirement funds, everybody's boat got lifted. The public's boat got lifted. Well, VCs and M&A firms, they saw that go on during the 80s and the 90s, and they said, we want in on that money. We don't want the public to have that money. We want to take those billions, trillions of dollars from being spread around to millions of people. We want to concentrate that into a very small group. So they started raising these funds that were big enough to um, invest in companies and keep them from having to go to the public markets. And so what happens is they have this opaque system all along the way when they go from their seed rounds to their A, Bs, whatever they go up to. This is a world where there's not a whole lot of accountability. Nothing is marked to market. You can play fast and loose with valuations, post-money, pre-money. It's a very incestuous world. And then what happens is the IPO process, instead of being the start of the hockey stick, it's the liquidity event for the VCs, the M&A firms, the private money. These cloistered groups, these elites that make a lot of money and leave the public holding the bag. So I'm not too empathetic, too sympathetic to what's going on in the private money markets right now because let's face it, they've been playing fast and loose for a long time and especially fast and loose for the last four, five, maybe even more years. Ridiculous valuations on companies that have no products and no prospect of profitability. Um, You know, there's some people out there like my friend Howard Lindzen. Like, he's been calling these things out for the last couple years. He's been saying that valuations are ridiculous. He's walked away from deals. He said, I won't invest in this deal because it's just ridiculous. So there are people out there that that call it as they see it. But uh, again, these these folks are not hurting. And a little pain is sometimes good. You know, sometimes it, it causes people to re-examine the way they do things. Someone was online uh, on Twitter today telling me that 
well, this is good because, you know, we need to change the way we do stuff. We need to change the way uh, private markets work, etc. They just don't change spontaneously. People don't wake up one day and go, you know, we shouldn't do things this way. You know, we shouldn't make hundreds of millions of dollars worth of fees. We shouldn't make billions of dollars on IPOs. The only way that things change like that is when they break and when there's a lot of pain. And maybe this is the beginning of that breaking and pain process that is going to, you know, clear out some of the, the froth in, in private markets. All right, so end of rant. But there's another risk out there that nobody's really been talking about or a few people have been talking about, but not the mass media. And it's called the Commitment of Traders Report. So the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, they regularly put out this report. Uh, they put it out each week that tells you whether speculative investors like hedge funds are long, net long or net short interest rate futures. And there was a hack, apparently, on the CFTC uh, platform. And they have not been able to put out these numbers since early February. I think February 10th was the last time that we, we got a report. So without the CFTC data, we don't know what's happened since then. We don't know have some of these positions unwound? Have they gotten bigger on one side or the other? And that's the real key, right? If they have gotten bigger on one side or the other and have yet to unwind, there's another unknown force behind the scenes in the markets that we may have to reckon with. This reminds me of something that happened about three weeks ago when I was on a Spaces. One of the participants on the Spaces was talking about a position they were acquiring. And they said, look, this is one of the biggest positions I've ever held. And the reason that they were buying this position was because three major institutions had recently filed to say that they had they had taken initial positions in this stock. And the guy's theory was this was a strategic investment. And there was a debate going back and forth on the spaces. One person said, no, I don't think it's strategic. I think it's purchases meant to satisfy requirements around ETFs that these institutions back. And But this guy was so adamant. No, no, I, it's strategic. It's strategic. Well, the stock he was acquiring, the biggest position he was acquiring, turned out to be Silvergate, SI. And we all know what happened to Silvergate in the last couple of weeks. Point is, there's always unknown risk in the market. Right now, there feels like there's a lot of unknown risk. And you never know about this risk until the absolute worst time. Like you won't find out about SIVB until the exact worst time. You won't find out about SI. We won't get that commitment of traders report until the most acute moment. And at that point, there's nothing you can do. One of the ways that we prevent catastrophic risk from taking us off of the board is to manage the risk, right? To make sure that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket, that we're not too leveraged. That's our first line of defense. But our next line of defense is technical analysis. And it's weeks like this week where I just don't understand how anyone could trade or invest without considering the technical analysis aspects. There were people on Thursday during the course of the day when 
SIVB was down 40%, 50%, even 60% near the end of the day. And what were they saying? They were saying, this is overdone. This sell-off is overdone. I'm going to be picking up shares here at 120, at 110, 105. Well, I don't know what they were thinking the next morning when you know, when it was trading pre-market at 35 and they couldn't get out of their position. And I don't know what they're going to be thinking on Monday morning when likely someone comes in and buys the, the bank and wipes out equity holders. Again, the way that we manage catastrophe is by managing our risk. But technical analysis is so important to keep us out of situations like this. Just even price action is important. For example, this last week and a half, two weeks, we've seen the the watch list, the green watch list and the red watch list and the orange watch list that I put out every day. We've seen them ebb and flow ahead of market changes. They've really kind of given us a signal like we saw it really expand when we had that two-day run. And there was an op- opportunity on uh, Thursday to get some, on Friday to get some of that um, that run. There was an opportunity on Monday when we gapped up and ran to get some of that. But then the list contracted terribly, and it collapsed on Wednesday. I think it was. Um, those things are signals. Price gives us signals, um, and those signals, most of the time, combined with good risk management will keep you out of the SVBs, will keep you out of the silver gates, will make it so that you don't really have to worry what the report is for the commitment of traders. And that for me just provides a lot of peace of mind. It allows me to sleep well at night. I don't have to worry about what's gonna happen in overnight markets. I don't have to worry what's gonna happen over this weekend. And I just think it's a much better way of managing your trades and managing your investments. And it just helps you avoid these these outlier events like we saw this week. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.